Counting cards gives players an edge over the casino. Counting cards while playing blackjack is one of the only casino games where players can actually beat the odds. Rather than the odds being weighed against players, card counters will beat the casino over the long run. They'll win more than half the games they play. And card counting isn't cheating, it's totally legal. So, why aren't casinos going bankrupt? How do casinos survive? And why aren't all of us quitting our jobs to count cards? Well, there's one surprising reason that stops card counters from endlessly cashing in, and it's not to do with the mathematics behind card counting, it's all to do with the psychology. Today, Stephen Bridges, who is arguably the world's most well-known card counter, joins me on Nudge to explain the behavioural science secrets behind card counting. He explains what card counters need to do to win, and how casinos bend the rules. Keep listening, and you'll learn how to beat the odds. All that after this quick break. Success Story, hosted by Scott D. Clary, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features Q&A sessions with successful business leaders, keynote presentations, and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Back in December last year, Scott did an episode with marketing legend Seth Godin on how to hire well, which I think is well worth tuning into. So listen to Success Story wherever you get your podcasts. Whenever I think of card counting, I think of that scene from the movie Hangover. In the movie, the characters lose all their money during a wild stag do in Las Vegas. The three main characters, Phil, Stu and Alan, are desperate to come up with a way to win back their money and find their friend. That's when they stumble across the idea of card counting as a way to win back their cash. What are we going to do? Hey guys, did you find it? Nope, but check this out. The three characters take their seat at the blackjack table and then the character Alan begins to count the cards. As Alan quietly counts the cards, his expression shifts from excitement to focus. His eyes dart back and forth between the cards on the table and the calculations swirling in his head, while equations and numbers start to appear floating around his head, highlighting his intellect, his skill, his pure, raw intelligence. And that's always been my view of card counting. I've assumed it can only be done by incredibly smart mathematicians, the type of people who think a fun Friday night is discovering a new formula on Excel. But that's not true. Or at least that's not completely true. See, card counting isn't impossible to master. You don't need a PhD in statistics. In fact, one thing that makes card counting hard isn't the actual counting, it's something else. To dig into this, let me introduce my guest today. I think he's the world's most well-known card counter, with almost half a million subscribers on his YouTube channel and 45 million views in total. Stephen Bridges is probably the most recognizable card counter out there. Here he is introducing himself. Yeah, my name is Stephen Bridges and I'm a card counter, which basically means that I legally beat casinos at blackjack. So I play high stakes and I film a hidden camera show about doing that and I get into all sorts of trouble with the casinos whilst trying to beat the game. Now, some of you listening might be wondering what card counting actually is. 
Maybe you're like me. Maybe your perception was that card counting was a myriad of formulas and equations incomprehensible to a layman like me. Well, it's not quite like that. So in essence, card counting involves keeping track of the cards that have been played in a game of blackjack. And keeping track of them gives you an idea of what cards are remaining and what cards are likely to come. And then you can use that to gain an advantage over the house. So specifically in blackjack, if there's a lot of tens and aces on the way and you're playing blackjack perfectly, then you can gain an advantage. So in those situations, I'll bet loads of money. And when I don't have an advantage, I'll bet the smallest amount of money possible. So this really is playing the game in an unconventional way, although it wouldn't be considered cheating because you're just using the same information that all other players have access to to at the table. And the thing that I usually mention when anybody asks me if what I do is cheating is I'd say, can you name any game in the world where thinking too much or thinking in a particular way would be considered cheating? And usually the answer is no. It's just imagine playing a game of chess and being told, oh, you can't think four moves ahead. Three moves ahead is fine, but not four moves ahead. So a card counter is essentially just using their brain in an unconventional manner at the table to win at the game. Counting cards involves keeping track of the ratio of high cards, so tens, jacks, queens, kings and aces, to low cards, so the cards between two and six. All the other cards you can ignore. If you've counted more low cards, then it's time to bet big, as a higher card is more likely to come up, boosting your chance of winning. Now, there's much more to it than just this, but in essence, card counting is it's just basically keeping an eye on every card dealt and remembering the count. Stephen acknowledges that this isn't easy, but it's also not as difficult as most people assume. It's really hard to judge if anyone can learn to card count, because I think in a way it's a lot easier than people think, but it's also a lot more difficult than people think. So I did this video one time with Mike Boyd, and his whole thing is learning skills in a rapid amount of time. He's a very intelligent guy. So we spent a few days where I taught him to count cards, and he said something that I thought was really interesting and perfectly captured the difficulty of learning to count cards. He said that when he was getting into it, he thought that learning to count would be a really complicated system that once he understood would be relatively easy to implement. But in reality, it's actually a very simple system that's very difficult to implement. So each individual element of card counting, in essence, isn't that difficult with a degree of practice. But it's when you have to start putting those elements together and multitasking whilst also trying to look like a normal person at the table just playing blackjack that it becomes difficult. And the other element is that if you're a card counter, you have such a tiny margin for error. We only get a very small advantage over the house. So if we make any mistakes, it can totally wipe out that advantage. So card counting itself, can anybody learn it? Maybe, maybe not. But getting it to the point where you're actually playing well enough to gain an advantage, I think is very difficult. It's a simple system, but it's difficult to implement. Later on, we'll cover just why it's so hard to implement and how the best counters lean on psychology to get an edge. But first, I wanted to know just how much of an edge counting cards can give you. Yeah, essentially, as a card counter, we win just over half the time. So a lot of the time, we we lose a lot of money, which causes a lot of people, especially when you're getting into this, to think, wow, does card counting even work? Because with such a tiny edge, sometimes you can have genuinely hundreds of hours worth of losing streaks or you can lose a lot of money and the way i often describe it is that being a card counter is being a professional loser because you have to do so much of the losing just to get to the point where you're winning so yeah we win just over half the time 
we have a very, very small advantage over the house, but it's about getting as many hours in as possible. And that advantage eventually will work out in your favour over the long run. So the goal of card counting is really to maximise your time at the table, to play for as long as possible to make the most of your advantage. Unlike the hangover movie, you aren't likely to quadruple your money in one sitting. To win against the casino, you'll need to play a lot of hands. And eventually, after long enough, you will beat the odds. Which made me wonder, how much has Stephen made counting cards? I asked him. I actually, honestly, the, the honest answer is I don't have the running tally, like the running total to mind. <laughs> like I don't actually know. And it sort of depends on on how you want to judge it. Do you want to judge it based off me at the tables and how much money I personally have extracted from a casino or how much I've made as part of a team? So it really depends on how you look at it. But to give some sort of rough figures, in the last team trip that I did with my team, we were out for about two, three weeks. And in that time, we won $175,000. Now, that is... It sounds better than it is in a way because we have a lot of expenses as a big team. We have to split the money. But in general, that was pretty good. But then there's other trips where we might not make any money at all. So in general, when we're looking at how much we want to make, we are using software to sim uh, different scenarios and different bet spreads. So we'll start off with how much money we have, how much kind of we want to bet, what our top bet wants to be. And then we put these through a calculator and that will crunch out a number that's going to give us roughly our hourly rate on average. So some hours we might win a load of money, some hours we might lose loads of money, but on average, we will make X. And we call that number our EV, which is our expected value, whereas whereas our AV is the actual value what we've actually made. So with us, we're trying to make the, we're trying to go for the highest EV games, because when we go to America to play, we have a lot of expenses. So we really need to kind of go after the money. So we're trying to go for the aggressive games where we might get caught quite quickly, but we're really going for the money. And the EV on those games is probably in the hundreds of dollars per hour range, although it's very hard to judge because even just how quickly the game is dealt can affect that EV massively. But in general, to talk really rough figures, we're going for hundreds of dollars an hour, maybe even a bit more is what we're trying to go for. So if you were listening carefully there, you will have heard Stephen say, we might get caught quite quickly. And you might be thinking, what does he mean caught? Isn't this legal? Well, here's the thing. Card counting is totally legal. But if casinos catch you counting, they'll ask you to leave. This is known in the card counting community as a back off. Now, I think that's pretty unfair, stopping someone from playing just because they're winning too much. But it's legal. Casinos are private establishments. They have a right to refuse service. So if they notice someone counting, they'll tell them to leave and not always in the most friendliest of ways. No, occasionally, back-offs can be a pretty brutal experience. Yeah, back-off is in essence when a casino staff member will come up to you and just tell you that you can't play blackjack anymore. And that's usually it. This doesn't necessarily mean that you've been kicked out of the casino, it just means that they, they, they don't want you to play blackjack. And that is, the sort of tamer ones tend to just be, they'll walk up to you, they'll say, hi, can we have a word? They'll take you away from the table, and they'll say something to the effect of, We've determined you're an advantage player. We're going to be backing you off from blackjack. You're welcome to play any of the games you like, but no more blackjack. And that's just a nice, friendly way of doing it. And I'll say, thanks, and then just carry on and, with my day and, and leave. Now, that's the sort of, that's the tamest. That's as easy as it will go. The more aggressive ones really do vary. And it just depends on the staff members in the casino that you get. So they just might be, they might want to ban you from the entire property. So that it becomes, you know, trespassing if you go back on. They might be really angry about it. They might be really aggressive. They might be demanding your ID. 
all sorts of things that, that they might do uh, on the flip side. And I find that it really varies for me. A lot of the time, they're just they're just pretty nice. Or if they're not nice, they'll just be at least very neutral about it. They might just say, we've made a business decision and we don't want you to play anymore. And and they won't elaborate and they'll they'll be talking to you like a robot. And that's fine. And other times, maybe they'll not back you off at all, but they'll just make the game unplayable. So maybe they'll decide to shuffle every hand or they'll just say that we're limiting the table maximum to $10 or something a bit more, I guess, a bit more passive, which will achieve the same thing. If you watch Stephen's videos, you'll see that backoffs are very common. Stephen rarely gets to play for more than a few hours, and he's often caught after just a few minutes. You see, card counters bet in rather erratic ways. They go from small to very large bets very quickly. It's a telltale sign that the player might be counting. So the real challenge for a card counter is not keeping the count, it's blending in. The goal is not to stand out to look normal, and not to draw any unnecessary attention. And this is where psychology comes in. As much as casinos like to advertise, we love winners and we want people to come in and win, at the end of the day, they want losers, and that's their entire business model. So anybody that has an advantage in a casino game, the casinos don't want them to play. So as soon as as soon as somebody knows that I'm counting cards, regardless of whether or not I'm winning or I'm losing, because I could be on a losing session, they'll want to kick me out of that casino as soon as possible, because they'll know Given enough time, I'll eventually win. Researcher Sarah French in April 2016 published a paper that every casino owner has read cover to cover. It's titled Catching Card Counters. In the paper, Sarah French simulated 125,000 games of blackjack to conclusively determine how card counters play the game differently. The paper concluded that card counters typically bet five times the minimum bet on separate occasions throughout their hand. The paper even suggests that casinos could develop software to quickly determine players who are behaving like card counters and swiftly exclude them from the casino. Fortunately for Stephen, there's no such software just yet, or at least no such software that we're aware of. But the casino really does have an advantage here. They know exactly what to look for. And if they think you're counting, you'll be kicked out fast and you'll be told not to come back. So Stephen needs to make sure he doesn't stand out. So when I'm playing in a casino, I don't want them to realise that I'm counting. And it's kind of tricky because... The way that a card counter has to play is a pattern that they can spot. The thing where we're betting as small as possible when we don't have an advantage and betting as large as possible when we do have an advantage is a tell. Now, most players, you know, if they're going to be betting $10 a hand, maybe they'll go to $15 or $20 or even maybe $50 when they're feeling kind of adventurous, but they wouldn't go from $10 to $1,000. That would be ludicrously obvious and just weird. So as a card counter, we sort of want the bet range to be as big as we can because that maximizes our profits. But the bigger we have that range, the more it looks like we're a card counter. And one of the first things that surveillance are looking for is that change in bet sizes. So we have to kind of find the, the perfect balance between having the most aggressive bet spread as we can, i.e. the biggest difference between the largest bet and the smallest bet, but also not having it so big that it attracts an unnecessary amount of attention. So the whole thing that we're basically trying to do is look as normal as we can when we're in the casino but also maximize the uh, profits that we can make from that casino. So for example, one of the interesting things is that when we're playing blackjack, we're playing like a machine would be playing blackjack. So they've had computers play millions and millions of hands and find the optimum strategy for playing blackjack. And we are playing that perfectly. We've memorized every single chart and all the, the sort of options that we have. 
And we've also memorized other charts that tell us what to do when the count is different. So we're playing like a robot, ideally, but sometimes doing that can make you look really card countery. So card counters will often, well, it really depends on the counter, but card counters will sometimes play not the proper way, just so that they don't look like they're counting. So for example, for people that, that play blackjack, if you get a 20, like two tens, you would never split that hand. That's just a move in, in blackjack. You would never do because a 20 is a really good hand. However, the, if the count is high enough in certain situations, you might want to split that hand because it's just better for you to do so. However, that is the most card countery thing you could do because people that split tens are either very inexperienced players or they are card counters. So you're really like shining a light on yourself as a potential threat. So when I'm playing on a trip, sometimes there'll be certain moves that I won't make because they might look too card countery. Some card counters, depending on the game, will play incorrectly at certain points, but they'll have perfectly calculated how much money those incorrect plays will cost. That might buy them some more time because it might make them look more like an amateur but then it will cost them a little bit of money. So there's all sorts of weird little strategies that you can get into. And we call those things cover plays, which would be essentially not playing optimally so that you can look more like a regular player. The real challenge with card counting isn't counting the cards. It's making the casino think you're not counting cards. And this is tough. See, the human brain is a prediction-making machine. The human brain is constantly anticipating and making predictions about what will happen next based on past experiences and patterns. This predictive ability that all of us have allows us to navigate the world around us and make decisions in real time. All of us experience this. When we watch a ball being thrown, our brain predicts where the ball will go and how we need to move to catch it. When we walk down a familiar street, our brain predicts what we'll see next based on our past experience. If we see something unexpected, such as a construction site, our brain registers that as a break in the prediction. When we taste food, our brain predicts what the flavour will be. If the flavour is unexpected or different from what we predicted, our brain registers the difference. When something unexpected or novel happens, our brain detects a prediction error, essentially. This is why we often notice things that are out of the ordinary or unusual, such as a car driving down the wrong lane on the road, a person wearing an unusual outfit, or a casual gambler who suddenly ups his bet by £500. Our brains are constantly monitoring the environment, comparing it to our predictions and detecting when there is a mismatch. This is why Stephen needs to fit in. That's why he purposefully plays the wrong hand, just so he can blend in with the casino's predictions. But Stephen has other tricks up his sleeve. He even has a backstory to make sure he doesn't stand out. But then there's a lot of other stuff that we're doing. So when I'm going in the casino, I obviously want to look like a normal player. So I'll have a backstory. A lot of the time I'll be playing in some random casino in the middle of nowhere. And the question is always, why are you here? <laughs> because most of the time they have these you know, regular players. So I'll always have a backstory ready. And the one that I use most often, although won't be using now, is I say, oh, I'm a copywriter. So I write email copy. I'm self-employed. And once a year, I like to take a trip to the US where I go and just dot around the country, meet up with all my other copywriter friends, just to kind of network and, and stay in touch with people. And I've got a friend that lives down the road from here. And I find that that's quite a good cover story because it justifies me being in any place. Uh, because there's all these reasons they could be suspicious of you and you want to try and alleviate as many of those as you can. But really, a lot of the time, it's very difficult for us to judge whether what we're doing is buying us more time 
or not because we don't have a direct feedback from the casino. They don't tell us, oh, we caught you because you changed your bet size too much or we caught you because we didn't believe your cover story. We don't have any of that. And sometimes it can just be a case of the surveillance person being too busy to be paying attention to that blackjack table and you get a load of time. So all we can really do is try and do a bunch of things that we think are sensible and aren't too expensive because a lot of these covers have a cost and then hope that that's the best way of you know, doing things. One of those things that springs to mind that doesn't really have a cost but is really, really beneficial is just having different disguises, whether it's wigs or different outfits, things like that can make you look like a different person. And when a casino catches a card counter, a lot of the time they will upload a picture of their face and share it with the other casinos in the US. And that can be, make it really tricky because they might have your face printed out on a bit of paper when you get to the casino, just as someone to look out for. So things like disguises can really help get you a bit more time. Successfully counted cards is about not standing out and fitting in. Fortunately, there are lots of tricks card counters can use. After the break, Stephen will explain the best way to blend in and the psychological tips he's used to stay below the radar. As many of you know, I have just quit my job to go full-time on Nudge. But prior to that, I spent my career working in startups. And startups aren't easy. It's long hours, small teams, tiny budgets. It makes marketing hard work. But it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing and support all together. So you can increase your leads, you can fast-track your deals, smooth out support and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. HubSpot also offer discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform and not the type of discounts that barely make a dent. So if you're ready to boost your marketing without breaking the bank, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit hubspot.com startups. Okay, back to the show. Now, previously on Nudge, I've talked about why standing out is very important in business and advertising. The Von Restoroff effect, which I've mentioned plenty of times before, states that distinct assets are 30 times more memorable than non-distinct assets. And that memorability can make or break a business. There's an amazing example of this involving Angostura bitters. Now, if you've ever sat at a bar and you've looked at the bar and you've been looking at what they have on offer, you will have almost certainly seen Angostura bitters. It's a small bottle, but it has a very large label. In fact, you've probably looked at that label and wondered why it's so big. See, the label, if you haven't seen it, is hilariously large. It's far too big for the bottle. It looks like a printing error. It really looks like a mistake. And here's the thing. Originally, it was a mistake. In the 1870s, when the founder's sons took over the business, they entered the brand into a competition, hoping the exposure from a possible win would help grow the business. Before the competition, one brother designed the label and the other brother designed the bottle. But they didn't discuss size, so they worked with different dimensions in mind. And by the time they were done, it was far too late for either of them to change. They needed to work with what they had. So they stuck an oversized label on a fairly small bottle. Fortunately, one of the judges had the wisdom to tell them that this ridiculously oversized label might be a good idea. The judge said nobody is going to be stupid enough to make the same mistake, which means your product will be unique and it will stand out. As Harry Dry says in his brilliant newsletter, it became a signature label. 
and it worked. It stood out. It separated their bitters from the dozens of others on the market, and cocktail drinkers and bar staff remembered it. And because they remembered it, they would ask for it time and time again. That's why today, 150 years later, the world's most popular bitters is still the one with the ridiculous oversized label. They still haven't fixed that mistake today. Stephen, unlike Angostura bitters, needs to blend in. He needs to do the opposite. And he's got some nifty ways to do just this. It really depends on what character you're going for, right? Like I know some card counters that will go to Vegas, which is a really convention heavy place, and they'll get a lanyard and wear a suit. So it looks like they're at a convention, which I think is a genius idea. But then other people will just want to look like, you know, really casual. I think one of the things that card counters often do, this just might be a personality type thing, is that card counters are apparently usually quite neat. So the way that they are, the way that they dress is quite, even if they're dressing casually, they'll dress, you know, they'll be clean. So a good strategy could be to do the opposite. So one of the things that I try and do when I'm at the tables is I have my chips in a messy pile. I'm not very neat with my chips because if you're a card counter, it sort of goes against your nature to have the chips in a mess. So there's little things like that that you can do that just change how you look. Drinking at the table, for example, would be really beneficial if you're drinking non-alcoholic beer and they didn't realize it was non-alcoholic because most card counters won't drink. Well, I'd say almost every card counter won't drink because you want to stay sharp. So there's little sort of stereotypes about card counters that we'll try and avoid. You know, having a glass of water is a very card counter thing to do. Not drinking, being in your 20s is a very card counter thing. So we'll try and do as many things as possible to not sort of fit into that. But everybody's got a different style. So I know some card counters, they will just get to the table, they will sit down and they will shut up and they will be quiet and they'll be antisocial and they'll just play optimally. And in a way that can be really effective because they blend in and no one's really paying attention to them. Whereas for me, I'm quite a social person so I'll like to chat at the table and be that social tourist. I'll try and win over the staff, not just to sort of manipulate people, but just because I am social and I want to sort of be friendly with them. And I think when when they like you, they are a little bit disarmed. When they like you, they kind of think, oh, yeah, that's that friendly British guy and, and that's all well and good. And the other reason I like to do that is because I can talk while keeping the count quite well. Some people will struggle with that. There's other elements of my game that I'll struggle with, but keeping the count whilst having a chat is something that I can do. Whereas I think that the perception from casinos is that it would be almost impossible to talk whilst counting. And I actually had one situation when I was playing in the UK. This sounds like a weird flex, but I'll mention it because it's so relevant. I was having a chat with the dealer and somebody else at the table brought up card counting. And we were just all sort of chatting casually. And I asked the dealer to sort of explain what this was. I would say, oh, I thought you had to be you know, a genius or have a photographic memory to do that. And the dealer explained to me card counting. And one of the things that he said is, well, what a card counter will do is they'll change their bets a lot. Sometimes they'll bet a small amount, sometimes they'll bet a big. And I just went, I do that all the time. Sometimes I'm betting 25 quid, sometimes I'm betting 700 pounds. But what? And he said, yeah, yeah, but trust me, Stephen, you're not a card counter because there's no way that you could have this conversation, have any conversation while keeping the count. So there's little things like that that can be really effective. Another thing that springs to mind is that card counters, I should be careful what I say here. I don't want to give casinos tips. But in general, casinos will just often have a lot of misconceptions about what will make counting difficult when those things won't affect us at all. And there'll be other things that will affect us that, that, that aren't even on their radar. So I won't mention loads of them, but one that is harmless that springs to mind is that card counters actually like a fast game. They want the game to be going as quick as possible because the faster the the dealer is the more rounds per hour we're getting and that can go from that can double our hourly rate so we want a really fast game 
Whereas casinos will try and deal fast to throw off a card counter because they think that the card counter is going to make mistakes. Uh, but in reality, if the card counter is good, then they'll want a really fast game. Maybe it will work for, for you know, not good card counters, but in general, we want a fast game. So there's all sorts of things like that that we're uh, thinking about. To blend in, Stephen keeps his chips in a messy pile. He appears to drink an alcoholic beer and he chats with the dealer. It's no surprise this works. Just like me at the start of the episode, most dealers predict that to count cards, you have to deeply concentrate to keep the count. So holding a conversation would be pretty much impossible. Breaking that stereotype helps Stephen fit in. But here's the thing. Stephen can blend in even more depending on what he says. There's a great study cited in the Science of Storytelling that reveals how some conversations are far less memorable than others. In the study, researchers tested cliched metaphors. You know the types of metaphors, the ones that are overused, the ones that we've heard a hundred times before. Stuff like, the world is your oyster, actions speak louder than words, life is a journey, not a destination, and you can't judge a book by its cover. In the study, the researchers scanned the brains of people reading sentences that included these worn-out metaphors and compared their brains to when they were reading other less-known metaphors. Professor Benjamin Bergen, the neuroscientist behind the study, found that the more familiar the expression, the less it activated the motor system. In other words, these overused metaphors are so well-known that they simply don't capture attention anymore. They blend in to the conversation. Stephen could use this to his advantage. He could chat away with the dealer, talking about how life is a roller coaster, how love is a battlefield, and how you reap what you sow. <laughs> he'd be a pretty dull conversation partner, but he'd be a very successful card counter, because none of what he says will stand out in the dealer's mind. Of course, the opposite is true in the world of marketing and advertising. Using worn-out phrases like cutting-edge tech, big data, digital transformation, and disruptive technology does the opposite of what marketers want to achieve. It shuts off the brain, eroding our attention. So stop using those worn-out phrases and come up with something new. But back to card counting, because there's another camouflaging tactic that seems counterproductive but it's actually kind of genius. Here's Stephen to explain. A friend of mine has a strategy where he's just almost really angry at the table. Like he's betting really big and when he's losing, he just kicks up such a fuss. And it almost creates like this, well, it does create a weirdly tense atmosphere at the table. But because this guy is so comfortable with being seen by everybody and, and making a scene, everybody just thinks he's a bit of a unpleasant person but it means they don't think of him as a card counter. They think of him as an angry, rich guy that's just a bit arrogant. And that can be really good cover. Whereas there are some people that play it totally different and they'll just be, you know, they'll just totally change the persona. So there's a lot of different personas that can work. And I think it really is about finding what your natural personality type is and then thinking about ways you can exploit that to create that level of deception. There's one more tactic that Stephen uses to blend in, and this tactic is backed by a lot of behavioural science. It's all to do with first impressions. Here's Stephen to explain. The other thing that's kind of interesting is if you are losing a lot of money, then casinos tend to not be so worried about you. Even, even, if, even if you're counting, you can, they all know that you can lose a lot of money counting, but if you are losing, they tend to sort of write you off. So one of the best things that can happen for a card counter is they go to a casino and they have a really big losing first session because a lot of the time, 
staff or surveillance, psychologically, they'll just go, this person is a losing player. And then they will almost ignore you for the next few sessions, no matter how much you win. So there's little things like that that can be um, really like useful. Whereas if your first session is a winning session, then they might be a little bit more cautious of you. It's like that first impression really can make a difference. Now, there is some hard science that reveals why this works. Solomon Ash, the brilliant researcher behind the conformity bias tests, ran another experiment that showcased just how important first impressions are. The participants in the experiment watched a stooge attempting to solve 30 anagrams in succession. The participants didn't know they were watching a stooge, they thought they were watching another real participant. The stooge, who knew the answers always solved exactly half of the anagrams correctly, getting the other half wrong. He always got 50% right, 50% wrong. But the test had two variants. In one of the variants, the stooge got more answers right early on. He came out of the blocks quickly, getting many of the first 10 anagrams right before dropping off towards the end. In the other variant, the second variant, he did the opposite. He started slowly, getting many, many wrong to begin with, before performing much, much better at the end. Here's what's interesting. Here's the finding. When the stooge solved many anagrams early on, and then very few later, the perception the participants had of him changed. See, after the stooge had answered the questions, the participants were asked how many anagrams had been solved by the stooge they had been watching. The participants weren't told to keep count, so they would never know exactly. They would have to take a guess based on what they had watched. And when the stooge had solved more anagrams early on, the participants thought that more anagrams had been solved in total than compared to the second variant, where more had been solved towards the end. Now remember, the stooge had always answered just 50% correctly, and yet the participants' perception changed when the stooge performed better at the start. This showed that we systematically overestimate the ability of someone when they perform better early on, even if the overall performance is no better than average. A football team will appear far more superior if they start fast and score two early goals. A job candidate will look far more competent if she answers the first question brilliantly. And a card counter will look like an average Joe if he badly loses the first few hands. Counting cards is a challenge. It's not easy keeping count, and betting correctly based on that count is really hard as well. But it's not impossible. As Stephen says, it's a simple system... It's just really hard to implement, partly because it makes you stand out. So unlike most of us in marketing, in dating, in job interviews and in competitions, card counters don't want to stand out. They need to blend in. And knowingly or unknowingly, the very best card counters incorporate behavioral science into their disguises, using familiarity to blend in, unforgettable language and metaphors, rogue bets to match the predictions of dealers, all of which help them stay at the table longer and beat the odds. Now, as many of you know, I like to keep these nudge podcasts on the shorter side. I don't want to bombard you with an hour-long podcast. However, Stephen and I covered much, much more today than what I've shared. We also spoke about his YouTube channel, what he's working on next, whether card counters like what he's doing, and if a casino has ever tried to hire him. 
It's a really interesting chat. I just couldn't fit it all into today's show. So I have made the rest of the conversation available as a bonus episode. If you want to listen to this episode, you can get access right away. All you have to do is sign up to my newsletter using the link in the show notes. If you subscribe to the newsletter using that link, it has to be that link from the one in the show notes, you'll unlock instant access to the bonus episode. As soon as you hit subscribe, you'll get taken to the episode. Don't worry, you can unsubscribe from my newsletter immediately if you don't want to stay subscribed. You will still get the bonus episode, that's no problem. And if you're an existing subscriber, first of all, thank you, um, but you will need to do the same thing. You will need to add your email to the link in the description to get the episode. You won't be subscribed twice, it'll just check that you're already subscribed and then give you the episode. So if you enjoyed today's show, definitely go and give that bonus episode a listen. It really is a cracker. I want to say a massive thank you to Stephen for coming on today. Um, Definitely go and watch his YouTube videos because they are brilliant. Just go and search for Stephen Bridges on YouTube and give them a watch. I've also dropped a link to his website. On there, you can subscribe to Stephen's newsletter if you want. And he's got videos on how you can learn to count cards yourself, or you can even book a training call with him as well. If you like today's show, please do subscribe, drop me a review and share the pod with your friends and colleagues and get in touch with me to let me know what you think. I'm on Twitter. I'm P underscore Agnew on there. That's P underscore A-G-N-E-W. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. I'm Phil Agnew on there. So hit me a connection and say hello. Thank you so much for listening, folks. I will see you next week for another episode of Nudge. Cheers. Cheers.